Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. It's not uncommon in both the academic world but also in popular culture to hear people claim that historic Christianity or Orthodox Christianity, uh, you know, magisterial-believing Catholics, Bible-believing Protestants, have fostered oppression and intolerance, and that the way to advance liberty uh, and equality is to reject religion as a social force or a political force. And yet, you know, if you look over, say, American history, you find time and again that there are Christians, individuals, uh, institutions, ideas that have profound positive influence on human dignity and liberty. With me right now is Dr. Mark David Hall. He is the author most recently of Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land, How Christianity Has Advanced Freedom and Equality for All Americans. He's a Herbert Hoover Distinguished Professor of Politics and a faculty fellow in the Honors Program at George Fox University. He's also Associated Faculty at the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University and a senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion. He's, uh, the pub- he has written, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Separating Modern Myth from Historical Truth. Also, Christian, Great Christian Jurists in American History. And uh, most recently, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land, How Christianity Has Advanced Freedom and Equality for All Americans. Professor Hall, good to have you with me. Thanks. Hi, thanks so much, Al. Let's... Let's go to something that is basic here. You mentioned at the very beginning of the book, and that is at the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrim's Landing in Plymouth, uh, Massachusetts, there is relatively little celebration of this 400th anniversary. Uh, And that actually is quite different than previous, uh, you know, centennial and bicentennial celebrations of it. Why? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. You're exactly right. In the early 19th century, the Puritans were recognized by Americans and by visitors like Alexis Tocqueville as being some of the key um, progenitors of the United States of America, as being advocates for freedom and equality for all. Then I think uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote the Scarlet Letter, uh, uh, Arthur Miller wrote the Crucible. In the mid-20th century, so many academics were secular persons on the political left, and they just paint the Puritans as mean-spirited theocrats, as people that that were just afraid that someone somewhere was having fun. And (laughs) I think we've all grown up, even, you know, Christians who should be sympathetic to the Puritans have grown up with this idea that they were intolerant, that they were mean, and that the last place you'd want to live is in Puritan New England. Yeah, it's, uh, we have have these caricatures, that that have been handed down to us, very few of us, I think, have taken, have asked ourselves, well, how did life in Massachusetts Bay Commonwealth, how did that compare with life in other uh, religiously grounded um, societies uh, in Europe? And I, how, how did the, who were the Puritans in relationship to other Christian bodies at that time? We know, you know, they're, 
uh, break off away from the Church of England. The pilgrims from come over from the Netherlands. But tell us, how do they compare? How would we have observed them? What would we have said of them at the time? So, the, as, as you point out, the Puritans are Protestants. They're pro- part of the Protestant Reformation, and they want to purify the Church of England. And they're working at doing so, right? You have Henry VIII, but he doesn't really care about true religion all that much. And so they're working at at purifying it. Then eventually some just get fed up. And as you point out, go over to Holland and then come to America, the pilgrims. And they're followed by the great waves of Puritan migration. I think probably the easiest way to characterize them is that they're people of the book. They believe in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so what they want to do is they want to build thoroughly biblical uh, social institutions, political institutions. They want to um, figure out what the Bible teaches about their families and run their families in the, that sort of way. And in many respects, this had some very liberating uh, consequences. For instance, I point out in the book, you could be put to death in England for hundreds of crimes, taking a, a deer in the king's forest, um, stealing just a few shillings. And the Puritans got rid of almost all those death penalty um, provisions. And when they looked to the Bible to say, see, for instance, what the Bible says about theft, the Bible says in Deuteronomy, I believe, that the proper penalty for theft is restitution. If I steal your cow, I give you your cow back and one of my cows, right? So instead of putting me to death, you have restitution. And I would contend everyone was better off with that sort of legal code. (laughs) Now, you hear people say, well, they were willing to put people to death for adultery. Did they? They, they indeed. Look, looking to the Old Testament for um, for guidance, they see that the Old Testament penalty for adultery is death, and so they made it a death penalty offense. However, in all of New England history, only three people were put to death for <laughs> adultery, and that's not because your peers driven snow. And so I think what you see is, although this was the law in the books in practice, um, they, they, they rarely implemented it. You can also be put to death if you're an incorrigible juvenile delinquent. And again, there's a clear verse in the Old Testament to that effect. Right. But we have absolutely no record of anyone ever being put to death for that that offense. And so, yeah, I agree. You look at those those laws, and they certainly seem harsh. But in practice, they weren't. And again, the context is key. We have to remember, if we look around the entire world, it would be incredibly common to have penalties of that nature for crimes of that nature. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Puritans are also uh, often portrayed as somehow um, uh, obscurantists. They are in some way retrograde thinkers, but they were cutting-edge thinkers for their era, weren't they? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And if I could go down to a more base level, and this kind of makes a lot of sense if you think about the battle cries of the Protestant Reformation, sola scriptura, scripture alone, priesthood of all believers. One of the things you saw in these countries that were most impacted by the Protestant Reformation is an explosion of literacy. And in New England, you had virtual universal male literacy, and female literacy was not far behind. One of the first things they did is found Harvard College, Harvard College, one purpose of which is to prepare people for the ministry, but they recognized that was not the only purpose of a college education. So there's teaching science and um, all sorts of subjects. Yes, I think it's fair to say that the um, you, you just simply wouldn't have found a more literate society anywhere on the face of the earth as you had in Puritan 
New England. I want to say they're cutting edge thinkers, as we think of as as, as great thinkers, you know, John Locke or St. Thomas Aquinas, someone, something like that. Uh, but widespread literacy and a very humane society. Yeah, I mean, Jonathan Edwards was no slouch. Oh, no, he's probably the greatest theological mind America has ever produced. <laughs> he's right. a bit late yeah. to be called a Puritan, yeah, but he's right. definitely in that, in that tradition. He's in that tradition. Sometimes people talk about him as the last Puritan. But, yeah, he's, he's really an 18th century man. Um, speaking of the 18th century, we get into the, the period of what's commonly called the First Great Awakening, which many people believe has an influence on the coming revolution, that it's somehow the First Great Awakening creates all kinds of uh, civil channels of discussion that eventually make the revolution possible. Is that true? You know, I think you can make the connection. Let me um, just real quickly go back to our, um, our Puritan friend. Sure. Almost every citizen could vote, and they voted every six months. In Connecticut, you elected everyone from the, the, the dog catcher to the governor. And these people had 150 years of governing themselves, of making arguments in the public square, on voting for things and this sort of thing. The First Great Awakening just pushed that. It, it tore down um, existing ecclesiastical hierarchies. And again, there's an emphasis on the ability of the common person to be able to do things, to preach and and, and, and so forth. And so I do think it, um, it, it it helped pave the way for the war for American independence. There was also always in the background a fear that the, that, that the Church of England would send a bishop over to British North America to clean house. Only about 15% of Americans of European descent are members of the Church of England. The other 85% are considered dissenters, and so there was always a, a threat to religious liberty wow. that um, they were that, that they were worried about. Yeah, I, I didn't realize the num- those numbers uh, were so disparate. That's uh, that's fascinating. Uh, we're often told that the founders, the seven or eight outstanding uh, thinkers and actors of the American founding that they were um, compromised because of their relationship to slavery and that they actually didn't really have great respect for the Christian tradition, that uh, they, they would, people like Jefferson would tweak it, people like Franklin would tweak it. Um, did, they have dis- did they simply disregard the Puritan contribution? Oh, that's a good question. That's a it's a, a ranging question. In my last book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? I have a, a chapter entitled Were Any of the Founders Deists? And I argue that really they're, they're, they weren't, with the exception of Ethan Allen and Tom Paine, if we count him as an American founder. He, of course, was born in England. Now, we know for sure that Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, and John Adams had some less than orthodox belief. Right. So they're not orthodox Christians. And yet they routinely talked about God intervening in, in human affairs. They seemed to think belief in God was very important. All of them agreed. Literally every founder agreed that um, you had to have a moral people if you were to have Republican form of government. And if you're going to have a moral people, you have to have a religious people. And by that, they meant Christianity. And so I would say even, even someone like Jefferson, who really is... Um, an outlier. You know, mm-hmm. he spent significant time in Europe. Ben Franklin spends over half of the last 35 years of his life in Europe. Adam spent significant time in Europe. So again, these folks are not Orthodox Christians. They're more influenced by the Enlightenment than most 
than, than most Americans. But when you turn to the broader constellation of founders, I'm not talking about yeomen in the field. I'm talking about the people who are in the Philadelphia Convention, the people in the state ratification conventions, the people writing um, essays defending the Constitution or attacking it. I think what you see is a, is a much more widespread commitment to Orthodox Christianity. Probably 50 to 75 percent of these Americans of European descent at the time are accurately called Calvinists. Yeah. And so they're in this tradition, this Puritan tradition. They aren't Puritans, but they're in the tradition. Yeah. Uh, Mark Holder will come back and continue the conversation. My guest is Professor Mark David Hall. He's written recently, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land, How Christianity Has Advanced Freedom and Equality for all Americans, and we're taking you know, broad looks at some of our history here. I'm Al Cresta, and we'll be right back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Professor Mark David Hall. He is author, most recently, of Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land, How Christianity Has Advanced Freedom and Equality for All Americans. When we look over the the American story, the two areas, painful areas that we look at, we look at, of course, the institution of slavery and the oppression of African Americans, but also oppression of Native Americans. And those sorry situations seem to somehow always get blamed upon Christianity. So I'm always wondering, what are the ideas within, in this case it would be Protestant Christianity, various denominations, that uh, support the uh, oppression of African Americans or pro-Native Americans, and then you got not only the problem of ideas, but then you have to say, okay, what institutions? What did they do? So help me sort that out. Active Christians of the uh, 17th, 18th century and into the 19th century, was there any kind of consensus on what we call slavery? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. I think one of the things we have to recognize first is that there was a consensus throughout all of human history, and that is slavery is just natural. So it's practiced everywhere <laughs> right. in all societies, and it's really only within um, Christianity that, that slavery is critiqued. Um, it's practiced all over the New World. Even the 1619 Project admits that the 12.5 million Africans stolen from Africa and brought to the New World only 4% came to British North America. All the rest went to Central America or the Caribbean or South America. Mm-hmm. And so, again, we, I, I just say that by way of context. Um, you're exactly right. The um, Americans are people of the book, and you can look to the Bible and find passages that seem to support slavery. The Apostle Paul tells slaves to obey their masters. Um, when Onesimus escapes from his master and becomes a Christian, the Apostle Paul sends him back um, with a letter that we now know as the Book of Philemon, um, with the strong suggestion that Onesimus be freed, but not a command. Right Now, over, over and against that, you did have some Christians who were beginning to say, wait a minute, yeah, there might have been slavery in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, 
but that's fundamentally different than the American race-based chattel slavery. And as well, you had people arguing from biblical principles who are all created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, and therefore should be treated with respect and dignity. And this never happens um, under slavery, at least it's not, not for any sustained uh, period of time. And so by the time you get to the founding era, Pretty much everyone understood that slavery was uh, was bad. Mm-hmm. It, at most, they defended it as a necessary evil, and yet you did have um, Quakers initially, but then more and more Christians coming to criticize the institution. With respect to the founders, um, I point out first of all. Hardly any white Americans ever owned an enslaved person. Founders were a bit more wealthy, and they're civic leaders, and so more of them did, maybe up to 50% owned an enslaved person at some point in their lives. But the, the, the experience varied dramatically. So this would include a James Wilson, who had one household servant who was a slave, whom he eventually freed. John Dickinson, at one time the largest slave owner in Delaware, voluntarily freed all of his slaves. Ben Franklin owned five slaves throughout his lifetime, eventually freed the last of them and became president of Pennsylvania Abolitionist Society. John Jay, same story, freed his very few slaves and became president of the New York Manumission Society. And so you're seeing this movement. You're seeing a recognition that slavery is evil, that we ought to do something about it. Some founders, it's true, did not free their slaves, but even a number of these slave-owning founders, like a James Madison, a George Washington, a Patrick Henry, they called the institution evil, and and they they made it clear they wanted to see it eliminated. They just weren't quite sure how that could be done. Yeah, so this is is a... I think it's very important to keep in mind that these are people who are in motion. I mean... (laughs) They're, they themselves are growing in their own understanding of these things. Um, even Jefferson, who never did uh, release his slaves, thought slavery was a real problem. He didn't know what to do about it. Uh, I guess when we get into the 19th century, uh, how, how do the, the... Is division among Christians in the 19th century, is that along ideological lines, pro-slavery, anti-slavery, or is it regional? Um, it's definitely regional. And let me um, let me begin answering that question by retreating to the founders for sure. just a minute. Eight states eliminated slavery, abolished it altogether, or put it on the road to extinction. These are all the mid-Atlantic and northern states. Congress banned the expansion of slavery into the uh, Northwest Territory, mm-hmm. um, what became the state of, so of Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, parts of Minnesota. And so I, I think you can see these very concrete actions. Um, the founders did not like slavery. They wanted it to end. Unfortunately, in 1793 or so, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gen, right. which made the production of short staple cotton very very lucrative. And you can produce this cotton in the interior of the South, not just in the coastal ranges. And so what you see is just an absolute explosion of slavery. And within the South, you begin to get a switch. Now, no one, literally no one is calling slavery a good thing until you get to the 1820s, where you have John C. Calhoun and others begin to call it a, it's a positive good. It's a, it's a good institution. Mm-hmm. We don't need to be apologetic about it. But that's a late development, and it's very much a regional development. And as I think you might be hitting, you have a, hinting at, you have a very strong abolitionist movement that's up and running by the 1820s. So yeah. Christians, 
primarily in the north and in the Midwest, that are taking significant steps to prevent the expansion of slavery, and clearly they want to abolish slavery, hence their name, abolitionist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and when you look over the sweep of American history, when do you see Christianity uh, beginning to be characterized as uh, reactionary, no longer, quote, progressive, no longer contributing to human liberty uh, and equality. When, when, does that, the pop, when do the popular ideas change? You know, I'm going to divide your question a little bit. Forms of Christianity certainly have been called that, and as you're well aware, from the mid-19th century through the mid-20th century, Protestants routinely um, critiqued the Catholic Church as being reactionary, as being against democracy and freedom, and that sort of thing. I, th- I think critiques that were very, very unfair. The um, You know, you had set the rise of the idea of the separation of church and state, the formation of organizations like Protestants and other Americans United for separation of church and state. I think what you see in the 1960s, though, you have Vatican II and the, um, in the Roman Catholic Church, sure. of course. Um, but then you have these Supreme Court decisions that do things like ban prayer in public school, teacher-led prayer in public school, banning the public reading of the Bible in public schools. And so all of a sudden now the Protestants kind of wake up and they say, oh my goodness, what's going on? And they're <laughs> right. able to join forces yeah. with the Catholics. And you eventually have the rise of the religious right, Protestants and Catholics working together to restrict abortion, to protect religious liberty, and things of that nature. And it's at this point where I think the the progressive left started to characterize Christianity as being very regressive, these mean-spirited Christians who want to restrict women's bodies, right? Right. Um, right. Who want to protect bigots. Um, that begins in the 80s and 90s. It has really taken off in the 21st century um, in, in ridiculous ways, but it's there. Yeah. It's, it's shocking. As someone who, you know, was raised in the 50s and 60s, and started following Christ uh, when I was an adult uh, at Michigan State University. And having seen so much that was done to bring uh, Christians together to work in the public square, uh, to try to um, recall uh, the value of Christian cultural influence, it is shocking to see what has happened, uh, you know, from the 2010 on. I mean— what do you attribute that to? I mean, the, the host. It used to be, you know, it might be difficult. Now it's you're dealing with hostility uh, on the university campuses that I didn't experience when I was at Michigan State. Yeah, I think that's right. You, um, I, I tell the story in my book. You have the, a wonderful test for protecting religious liberty developed by William Brennan, uh, usually viewed as a liberal right. Supreme Court justice. When this test was unfortunately overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court and Employment Division versus Smith, you had Democrats and Republicans coming together to get it back in place, yeah. right? The Religious Freedom Restoration yeah, Act, exactly. 97 to 3 in the Senate, unanimous in the House, signed into law by President Bill Clinton. So even back in 93, Democrats and Republicans could agree on the value of religious liberty, robustly understood. You get into the 21st century and you have the Obama administration routinely speaking about the freedom of worship. You can do what you want in your church, your mosque, your synagogue, but don't you dare bring your faith into the public square. Right. And certainly don't bring it in a way that threatens 
any sort of progressive agenda, um, abortion and gender um, transition surgery. Right. And, um, you know, and don't dare think about not participating in the same sex wedding ceremony. Right. Right. And right. so when it comes to these sorts of things, I think people on the left probably still per- would protect the ability of a Native American to use peyote in a religious ceremony. Uh, but don't talk to them about protecting Jack the Baker or Baron L. Setsman or, or people like that. Right. Right. So uh, have we uh, just again, I know I'm, this is one of those questions that it's more of a guess guesswork, but it's an educated guess. Uh, are we does the activistic left? Uh, are we going to have to be? Fi- are we going to be fighting them for long? Do you see any hint that um, their cultural influence is diminishing? You know, I don't think it is. I, I think one thing we've seen, as you know, is the rise of the nuns. N o n e s. Yep. People who just say, "I basically don't have any re- religious affiliation." They might not say they're atheists, but they just have no religious affiliation. They tend to be very much on the left. And you can imagine why nuns might not have a lot of concern for religious liberty. Unfortunately, the um, the commanding heights, if you will, of media, of the academy, yeah. of um, corporations are controlled by people with these sort of progressive uh, agenda, which is why you get the Bud Light can featuring <laughs> the person who's transitioning and, and this sort of thing. Fortunately, we have an excellent U.S. Supreme Court in place that is protecting religious liberty, right. and religious liberty for all, not just for Christians, right? I can point to That's a right. number of cases where they're protecting the rights of, of, of Muslims. I would like to think that the left has overreached. I think putting men, biological men, into women's sports and yep. saying that's just fine. You know, a lot of people on left of center are going to say that's kind of crazy. Yep. Doing these gender mutilating surgeries for minors, for children. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, again, a lot of people on the left, maybe even people who aren't of faith, are going to say that's crazy. We, we yeah. can't be doing that. Yeah, I, you never know that we may be watching the modern equivalent of lobotomies uh, when it cut this gender affirming uh, sur- these gender affirming surgeries uh, gender reassignment surgeries we'll see um but uh, yeah i think i'm hoping too i'm hoping too that there's a boomerang effect here uh that they've overreached and uh, it'll come back to bite them um do you see that relationships between um christians of different traditions catholic protestant uh, evangelicals progressives uh is that getting better Oh, I think tremendously. Yeah, I think yeah. The, um, uh, the long-time differences between Catholics and Protestants have been papered over. I know there's still theological differences yeah. that yeah. are important and meaningful, but working together politically, it's just a no-brainer. Well, yeah. We do it all the time. Yeah, I agree. Mark, thanks so much. Wonderful uh, talking with you. Wonderful book, too. Thank you. Thank you very much, Al. Professor Mark David Hall, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land. How Christianity Has Advanced Freedom and Equality for All Americans. We have it for you in the online bookstore. It's an outstanding book.